0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. This morning we're verses 1 through 12. Here in Matthew 2, we're seeing what Matthew wants us to see about how people respond to Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 was about Him. Chapter 1 showed us that Christ, the Messiah, has come, that He is, in fact, the son of David, that means he's the heir to the throne of Israel, that he is in fact the son of Abraham, the promised offspring or seed through whom God will bless all the nations of the earth. Chapter 1 also pointed us to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, which highlights his divinity and his sinless humanity. Chapter 1 tells us that the Christ's name is Jesus Jesus means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And chapter 1, we saw, tells us that his name is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if Jesus is all that, and he is, what will you do with him? How should we respond to him? That's chapter 2. Let invite you to consider these things from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose... And have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, quote, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet... And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us to think this passage through with fresh eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So bless us and show us Jesus and speak to our hearts about him. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The advantage of working through a passage about the birth of Christ in September and not December is that uh, I, can, uh, I can mess with some of our Christmas carols and uh, it shouldn't bring you too much angst, right? So, uh, just to clear the air about some of the things Matthew teaches us here, the story, because it's so been so sentimentalized, right, and because there have been additions and traditions added to... Uh, the story of Jesus, not found in Matthew's text. Uh, We need to think that through just a little bit. For example, right, there's no evidence in Matthew that the magi or the wise men were kings. We three kings of Orient are, are not kings from the Orient. At least uh, we are not told that at all. They are magi, they're wise men, they were in search of a king but they were not themselves kings. Likewise, there's no evidence in Matthew that there were three of them. We're not told how many there were. Magi is plural, so there were at least two. And of course, people take the three gifts and leap from that to three wise men. Another example is that there's no evidence in Matthew's account that they came to the stable. On the contrary, they came, it says, to the house where they were. That's different from the stable where Jesus was born. So our nativity scenes with both shepherds and wise men together around a newborn probably aren't correct. Can't imagine the shepherds hung around that long. And there's no evidence that Jesus was still a baby. Matthew calls him a child. And King Herod gave orders that all babies under the age of two should be Executed, which tells you based on the time of Jesus' birth that he's likely not just a brand new newborn, but somewhere between newborn and two. I mention these things because here at Redeemer we hold the Bible in high regard. The Bible is God's Word, it's true and it's inspired by God, it's authoritative, and so we want to make sure that we believe what the Bible teaches, and not just what some of our carols teach us. Now, why did Matthew include this in his gospel? Why did he tell us this story of these wise men, and what are we to learn from this? Let me uh, outline the passage in three parts, kind of show you where we're headed. In the first place, I want you to think about the wise men who looked for Jesus. I want you to think about the wise men who then worshipped Jesus, and the wise men who gave gifts to Jesus, In the first place they looked for him. The wise men sought out Jesus because God sought out them. Notice verses one and two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews for we saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. It's really pretty amazing. Matthew, a Jew, in the opening book of the New Testament, in which the Savior of the world has come to the Jews, his own, tells you at the beginning it was Gentiles. Gentiles who came seeking the king. And they found him. But Israel, not the king of Israel... Not the leaders of, the, of religion in Israel and not the people of Israel themselves seemed to have any idea that the king had come. But God used a star to draw pagan Gentile wise men to the Savior. Now, who are these wise men and what, were the, what, what is this star? These, these wise men, or, or some translations, magi were uh, probably from the Median tribe, which had been conquered by the Persians. So they were from the Medo-Persian Empire area of the world, uh, which had itself been conquered, but probably a long family history here uh, in the place that we would now call Iran and Iraq. And they were astrologer priests. They were fascinated with the stars in the sky. They examined the stars and the constellations and the movement of them, and they drew conclusions. So they were kind of a a mix between astronomers and astrologers. And They were fascinated with those things, uh, and they also studied ancient scripts and and scrolls and prophecies. They knew something of the Old Old Testament, uh, evidently. The Greeks... Called them magi. Magi is Latin for the Greek magus, from which we get the word magic and magician. Yet they aren't magicians in the way that we think of magicians. When uh, when I was in university, I had the pleasure of watching one of the most accomplished magicians ever, Andre Cole, put on a show at my school. He walked on water not 30 feet from me and he had me completely befuddled and sold I don't know how he walked on water but he would tell you it was just an illusion Uh, he's the guy that invented the trick that made the statue of liberty disappear before a live audience and he sold that trick to David Copperfield who I think did it on live tv so this is no slouch as a magician. Uh, the illusionist, Cole, investigated the miracles of Jesus to see what, what it would take to pull them off. And he concluded, quote, if Jesus had been a magician, then you, would have had, you, would, you have to visualize 2,000 years ago, Jesus and his disciples walking through the desert streets of Galilee in long robes and sandals with three diesel trucks along behind to carry all the equipment necessary for him to be." A magician. So Andre Cole, having looked at these things from the side of an illusionist, uh, concluded that Jesus couldn't have faked these things, and he actually became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ on account of it. I have an, I have a friend, Scott Davis, who's the pastor of Hope Church in Hot Springs, and he is also bivocational, and he's a magician. He has, a, he has a show in Hot Springs, and if uh, any of you parents have had kids in the schools where they've, they've had a presentation from the power company to talk about the dangers and blessings of uh, power, uh, Scott Davis is probably the guy who did that show because it's a mix of comedy and magic and instruction. Anyway, PCA pastor and a magician. Some magicians do believe in Jesus. That really is my point. Some magicians do believe in Jesus. I know you were really waiting for something more than that. But these magi aren't magicians like that, right? These are wise men. Yes, students of the stars. Um, Yes, uh, scholars who studied ancient books and scrolls. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, is actually described as a magi or a, one of these wise men. It, it, Daniel chapter 1 and 2, he was, he was a Jew who knew his Old Testament prophecies. He was also well instructed in all the literature of the Babylonians. And he interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so he was, a, he was a dream interpreter. That dream of that great stone that would crush all the other kingdoms of the world, he said. Uh, He said that was the God of heaven who would set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, all its predecessor kingdoms, and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. So Daniel spoke of the coming Messiah as a king whose kingdom would endure. Now, perhaps... These wise men from the east, from the region of Babylonia where Daniel was exiled and labored, perhaps they uh, learn of the, the Messiah king to come to the Jews from Daniel. We don't know, but we do know they saw a star and they understood that they should go to Israel uh, to find the king whose star had risen. Uh, Now what is this star that had risen? You see it in verse 2, the star had risen, and then again at verse 9, you see the star moves and then stands in place, and so many have scratched their heads at this, as I have again this week. There have been lots of uh, different uh, interpretations offered through the centuries. Kepler, the very famous scientist and father of modern astronomy suggested the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces in the year 7 BC as a possible it was one degree of separation which would have looked like the moon sitting between the two planets but still they came that close together on three separate occasions in that year now 7 BC sounds like a strange time for the birth of Jesus Jesus being born before Christ, that's odd, but just understand that the guy that did the calendar calculations that give us B.C. and A.D. actually goofed up. And it's just a widely known fact that Jesus was not born in the year zero. Anyway, Kepler, though, having suggested that idea about the planets, actually himself preferred the idea that this was a supernova, which was you know, one of these uh, dying stars that violently explodes and then over the course of weeks or months uh, dissipates. That was his idea. Others have suggested this is some kind of comet flying through the sky. Some have thought Halley's Comet, though Halley's Comet came through in 12 BC, which is too early by almost anybody's standards. More likely, this is my view, this is just simply a miraculous phenomenon, or at least the second star, if not the first star, if indeed there are two distinct stars. And I'm willing to be wrong about all of that. Whatever it was, I believe that the star led them right to the home of Jesus because it's in the Bible. Even if I don't have all the answers to that question. Now, that same Bible tells us God in the Old Testament forbids astrology forbids his people to engage in the study of the signs for the purpose of discerning the will or the plan or the purposes of God. We have his word for that. Isaiah even mocks stargazers Isaiah 47 13 to 15 who make predictions month by month but cannot even save themselves. See uh, isaiah ridicules astrologers who are pretty easy to ridicule i mean if you can tell the future why are you working at circuses and in the most rundown parts of town why not just predict the future about the stock market get yourself rich and quit anyway yet all that aside god condescends or stoops down to do what exactly to draw to himself pagan Gentile stargazers. He leads them by a star when his own people won't even be led by the scriptures. It's a striking contrast. The stargazers are led by God to the baby whom they worship, and the people who have the Bible about where he's to be born aren't even looking. And that reminds us that God must reveal Christ To us, if we are to see Him and embrace Him, the very religious people who had this amazing heritage of faith and a heritage of revelation, of scripture, of promises, of covenants, were blind to the spiritual realities. Because, as my old pastor put it, it doesn't matter how great the light is if we do not have eyes to see. If we are spiritually blind, it doesn't matter how blinding the spiritual light is, we will not see it. So these Gentiles see the light. But few in Israel except the shepherds who had the angels appear to them. And Mary and Joseph who had angels tell them what this was all about. And and some few others who did come and rejoice in the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah that the people of God had been waiting for since the days of Abraham and even since the day of Adam. The Gentiles saw the light and God's own people were spiritually blind. And so it is possible for you to be a member at Redeemer and faithful in attendance even in our worship service and hear me every week talk about the glory of Christ and the grace of Christ and yet you are still in your sin blind to his grace blind to your own need for him are you are you like the magi the wise man who go seeking and looking for the king who is to be born and then worship him when they find him If you aren't, then you're in principle just like Herod or the religious leaders of the people of that day. The wise men sought out Jesus because God sought out them and gave them a sign, a star. Such is the mystery of his sovereign grace. Now that's the first thing I want you to see. Now the second I want you to see is that not only did they look for him, but of course they found him and they did what? They worshipped him. They worshiped him. They adored Jesus while others were alarmed and anxious or apathetic. You see that in verses 3 to 11. You see the reaction of all kinds of people beginning with Herod. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard, he heard their inquiry. We've come to see the child born king. Well, Herod, who's the king, was troubled, it says. And his reaction to the birth of Jesus is in accordance with his known character. What we know about Herod. His long reign, over around 40 years, was stained with blood. It was the Romans who put him on the throne. Within three years of taking the throne, he had suppressed all opposition to his reign. It was the Romans who called him the king of the Jews, but he wasn't actually the king of the Jews because he wasn't even a Jew himself. His father was an Edomite, and his mother was an Arabian princess. So he technically had no right to the throne of Israel to be their king. And in consequence of his lack of right to the throne, he lived in kind of a a constant state of terror and actually the older he got a a growing paranoia that, uh, that there were threats to his throne that could undo his rule. And so he killed, all rivals as he found them. He killed his own wife, Maryam, because he feared her. He killed his own mother, Alexandra. He killed three of his sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater. And he killed more than half the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the leading Jewish council. And he killed sundry other uncles and cousins who fell to his jealousy uh, or his jealous rivalry. Um, As John Stott put it. So it's not surprising that uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, called what we call Herod the Great a pitiless monster. And Augustine, the Emperor Augustine, once declared that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because, of course, as the king of the Jews, he couldn't eat pig, but he slaughtered his own children. And he had this kind of paranoia. So when the Magi show up and they ask, where's the king of the Jews? He's filled with alarm. And you, can, you hear him saying to himself, but I'm the king of the Jews. Who is he to rival me? So you see Herod's alarm. Then you see what? The people are anxious, right? Verse 3. Here's how they respond to this birth of the Christ. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now that's perfectly understandable. When Herod is disturbed, the people were disturbed, right? Any, Any question like the wise men's question would likely result in more cruelty from Herod and he was pretty unpredictable and ruthless and they didn't want that. So when Herod trembled for himself, the people trembled for themselves and they lived anxiously. And then you see another response. You see a third response, the apathy of the Jewish leaders. You begin to see this at verse 4, but it plays out over the passage, right? Herod gathers all the chief priests and all the scribes of the people. Now, what is that? Chief priest, there's always just one chief priest. Normally they remain chief priests until they die, but, but some retired early and some were sort of booted out so the next guy could come in so there was a little collection of a chief priest and former chief priests and the chief priests were generally of the of the Sadducee uh, theology and commitments and they were progressives in their day they accommodated themselves to Roman power and Greek culture they were happy to retain their wealth and their power and their influence even if they had to give up believing in all kinds of bible doctrines to do it That tended to be where the chief priests came from. The scribes, however, were generally Pharisees. They were generally of a different religious party in Israel known as the conservative Bible-believing students, generally. And the answer then that they give, and both groups give it, is found in verses 5 and 6. When Herod inquires, where will this child be born, Uh, they quote back to him. Uh, a paraphrase of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 with 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 2 tacked on so 700 years before Jesus came Micah the prophet foretold the place of Christ's birth notice the language verse 5 and 6 I mean they get this exactly right in Bethlehem of Judea for so it is written by the prophet and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. By the way, there were two Bethlehems in Jesus' day. This is the Bethlehem in Judah, not the Bethlehem in Samaria. And the prophecy goes on, or actually picking up 2 Samuel there, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the ruler, the shepherd, he's going to come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small And fairly insignificant and out of the way place. But it was the birthplace of King David. And so it was called the city of David. And out of it would come David's greater son. The ruler who fulfills the prophecy. And so they deliver the report to Herod. But evidently they themselves do nothing about it. They don't. I mean, Matthew is silent about it, but it doesn't seem that they rejoice in this. They don't run to Bethlehem to track down the Messiah king who's been born in the place they know he's coming. Uh, And uh, maybe, as one put it, maybe they just went home later that day and somebody asked, how was work? And they said, work was great. You know, the king had a question and I gave him a pretty good answer and he seemed happy about that. And then they just went on their merry way. Sometimes, says Dan Doriani, those who most know the faith in the mind know it least in the heart. And that's a tragedy, but it's all too common. And so they're apathetic. The people are anxious. Herod is alarmed. And how does he respond to the prophecy? Verse 7 through 11. Well, he's kind of cagey. And he's also convincing in his lies. He tells the magi to search diligently for the child. And when they find him, bring back word to him so that he can, what? Go and worship too. Right? He doesn't send soldiers with them to accompany them. He doesn't send supervisors, you know, to go along. Um, This is part of his plot, evidently, to win the trust of the wise men. I'm no threat. Just, hey, let me know where the child is. It's only the warning in the dream, verse 12, that the wise men shouldn't go back and report to Herod, but that they should leave and go another way. So they don't realize on the front side he's lying and he's dangerous Herod really, of course, had evil purposes in mind, and as we'll see next week, he ordered the slaughter of all two-year-old boys. So Herod is alarmed because he sees Jesus as a threat. And I simply want to pause there, and I want to ask, what about you? There are many people who see Jesus as a rival or a threat. A threat To our own independence. Our own autonomy. Because we want to live our lives without accountability to anybody else including God. But Jesus is our accountability. And he interferes with our lives. Because he's the king. And what do we want to do with Jesus? Well many of us we just want to get rid of him. We want him to go away. We wish he would leave us alone. You can either do that. You can see Jesus as a threat and determine like Herod to get rid of him and push him away if you can't kill him, which you can. not Or see Jesus as the wise men saw him, as the true king of kings and true Lord of lords and bow and worship him and embrace him. Who are you? Or think of the people's response of anxiety. Is that you? What do they really want? They want peace with their governing elites. They didn't want to see the king get ruffled or feel rivaled. They want everything just to settle down so life can be safe. And there are many today who refuse to believe in Jesus, not just then. But even today, for fear of what those above them will think of them, say of them, or possibly do to them. Many, for fear of others, refuse to follow Christ. Their question might have been, could this lead to my harm? It's a sensible question, because Herod was unpredictable and ruthless and a murderer. But still... Fear ought not govern our decision when greater things are on the line. Not just physical death, but potentially spiritual and everlasting death is on the line. In whether you embrace or reject Jesus Christ. It's all too easy to let the fear of disapproval from people above us, uh, to let the fear of financial loss To let the fear of relational strife or family mockery keep us from embracing and professing faith in Jesus Christ. We need, as a people, we who have embraced Jesus, we need courage from the Lord to die to ourselves and to die to the fear of man. That we might, for the sake of reverence for Jesus, be open in our allegiance. And then there's not only the response of Herod or the response of the people, you may see yourself in them, or maybe you see yourself in the religious leaders and their apathy. They were evidently happy with their reputation as Bible scholars. They were uh, perhaps content to know where the Messiah was going to be born, but they were also content not to let it shape their commitment to important things, right? They had no doubt about the prophecy, but they had no heart for the king who fulfilled the prophecy. As J.C. Ryle says, there may be knowledge of the scriptures in the head while there is no grace in the heart. And I wonder if that's you. They served Herod faithfully, but they had no interest in serving the Lord Himself. So, which is it? Alarm, anxiety, apathy, or adoration? Or are you like the wise men? Who did what with Jesus? They worshipped him. Verse nine. After listening to the king, they go on their way. The star shows them where to go. They see the star. Verse ten. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Verse eleven. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Pagan Gentile stargazers embraced the Messiah. Forerunners of millions of millions Gentiles who have since fallen before Jesus in worship and such are some of us does that adoration that they had does that surprise you Lincoln Duncan says if it is surprising that Messiah comes to Israel and no one seems to know or care it is even more surprising that God has children in a far off place far from the word of God far from the prophets of old far from the land of Abraham far from the land of Canaan and he brings them to Bethlehem to worship J.C. Ryle says there may be true servants of God in places where we would not expect to find them. Their history on earth may be as little known as that of Melchizedek or Job, but their names are in the book of life. There are people traveling to heaven, he says, at this moment of whom the church and the world knows nothing. And Matthew here is highlighting for you the truth that Jesus isn't just the Savior of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. He's the hope of the world. And from far away, God brings worshiping Gentiles to Bethlehem to worship His Son. Has God brought you to your knees to bow in adoration of His Son? I can tell you that if you refuse to worship him, God will find others to do so. Now, thirdly and more briefly, notice finally that in worshiping him, they gave gifts to him. End of verse 11, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, of course, was rare and expensive then and now and befitting a king. Incense was a glittering, resinous gum taken from trees. It was used in the temple worship of the Old Testament. It was used to anoint the priests uh, of Israel as they came into office. It had a pleasant odor. And uh, many have Christians have looked at that and, and said that the wise men either intentionally or not pointed to Christ as, his, as our great high priest whose entire life was pleasing to God. And then thirdly, they brought myrrh. And myrrh was a, a, like a resinous gum that also flowed, this time from a myrrh tree in Arabia. It was highly valued. It was used in embalming the dead. You may remember that Nicodemus used 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to uh, prepare the body of Jesus for burial. Gold for a king, incense for a priest, Myrrh for one who was born to die. Uh, Ursula von Williams, some of you who enjoy uh, a wide variety of Christmas music, not a carol that we sing, but a wonderful Christmas um, um, oratorio called Hodier. Uh, Ursula von Williams wrote this poem that her husband, von, Ralph von Williams, included in Hodier, And these are her words. Gold from the veins of earth he brings, red gold to crown the king of kings. Power and glory here behold shut in a talisman of gold. Frankincense from those dark hands was gathered in eastern sunrise lands. Incense to burn both night and day, to bear the prayers a priest might say. Myrrh. Is a bitter gift for the dead. Birth but begins the path you tread. Your way is short. Your days foretold. By myrrh and frankincense and gold. Well they brought all these gifts. And in doing so they weren't mercenaries about it. They didn't travel all this way. Some 500 miles. They didn't put up with all this expense. Endure all the hassles and give lavish gifts. In order to get something from this king, they came to give something to this king. Why? Because they are responding to the greater giver. They do the only reasonable thing when given the best gift of all. They don't withhold themselves from him. We sing uh, in the bleak midwinter... What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. That's what God wants you to give. He wants you to give your heart, your soul, your mind, your life. To Jesus, not remembering him once a year at Christmas, or not even just once a week, Sunday by Sunday, but loving him with your heart and serving him with your life at home and at work, in school, in public, and in secret places. And you can't outgive God. Has his gift then of his own beloved son for you so transformed your heart that you give your life back to him. Look, if all we have done today, if all that I have done today is explain the meaning of the magi, speculate at the star, tell you some history about Herod, and talk about gold and frankincense and myrrh, and we don't do anything with the story, then we are no different than the priests and the scribes in the story. And the point is to worship him. To offer ourselves because He offered Himself. To give back ourselves because He gave Himself. Is that your response? He's worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are all weak and cold and fickle and frail in our giving back. But have mercy upon our souls. And grant that we would love and serve You who first loved us and died, and rose, and lives for our eternal good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.